Heavenly Father, we are thankful and have been thankful, Father, for many years at the opportunity to delve into your word here on Wednesday nights, and we continue in that hope, Father, and and, uh, thankfulness, Father, that you've uh, made this opportunity available for so many over the years. Tonight, Father, as we go back into the study of Isaiah with uh, a firm commitment to remain in your word and to understand it tonight and in the weeks to come, I pray, Father, you would continue to give us patience and endurance to to hear what is in the word and to take it all in and to live by it as it may direct and convict us. And we pray, Father, that that as we've learned, we would be uh, called out through that word to live a different life and one that witnesses all the more boldly for you and for your gospel in these last days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1 of chapter 23, look at the very first line. The oracle concerning Tyre. This is the last of the oracles that we've talked about. Tonight we will finish with this one and then move on to some new material. But in this last one we'll see the same pattern in most respects to what we've seen so far. And in the course of understanding Tyre, we'll get a chance at the end to put a big puzzle together with all the pieces and just glance over it before moving on. So the final oracle here, Tyre. Tyre is Phoenician. You all know where Phoenicia is in a map. I actually brought a map. Uh, Now, how well you'll be able to see it from your seat is another question. I always post these online, so if you're listening to this later or if you want to go back and check it out, you can go online and pull down these maps. But you have, uh, obviously, Israel's coastline, Jordan. Uh, Actually, it goes from the north, extreme north here would be modern-day Syria, Beirut, uh, into uh, the current nation of Israel, down into Egypt eventually. In ancient times, Israel still here roughly in the middle, in fact, there's a little red word you can't possibly see. It says Joppa. Extra points for anyone who remembers the significance of the town Joppa. Jonah was taking flight to Joppa to get on a ship to go to Tarshish. Actually, there are four Tarshishes in ancient history, so we don't know which one he was going to. But he probably didn't care. But anyway, Joppa is in the center here. So that's the Jewish coastline because we know Joppa's there. You go a little further up and here's Sidon and Tyre at the very top of this map. They represent the cities that were the main ports in Phoenicia along the coast north of Israel. So when we talk about Tyre and Phoenicia or Phoenicians, we're talking about a people group that occupy a narrow strip of land on a coastland right above the border of Israel. Today, that is part of modern day Lebanon. So that area we think of now as Lebanon is what used to be Phoenicia. The city of Tyre actually began on the mainland, historically. That's where it was first set up, a port on the mainland. But about half a mile offshore from that port is an island, and the island was considered part of the city as well. It had its own port on it. But over time, for security, I guess, the people moved off of the land, the mainland, and occupied the island and left the mainland behind. And they became a walled fortress of a city, probably the most defendable a city in ancient history. In fact, the city of Tyre had existed for 2,300 years prior to Isaiah. So it had a long, long history. And some of the walls that defended it went straight into the water. They had built the walls, some of the most amazing uh, uh, engineering feats in the day. There's so much in the ancient world that was done in ways that, uh, that can astound us today. It shows you how little we really understand about the wisdom and the technology of those times. But they had walls that were 200 feet high. The walls varied around the, the, the island, but in some places 200 feet high that went straight sheer into the water, straight into the water, so that a ship came right up against the wall, had no chance 200 feet high to find any way to breach the city. If you know, and this is just a little piece of history, I'd encourage you to go read up on this because it's fascinating if you don't know this already. When Alexander the Great finally came and broke through the city at one point, in about 332 B.C., the siege that that he underwent to get into that city is one of the most incredible stories ever. He built, his men built, a half-mile stone causeway connecting the city on the mainland all the way to the island so that he could move all his heavy equipment and battering rams up to the wall. He built a half-mile stone causeway through the, through the water uh, to get there. In fact, that causeway is still there today and people use it from the time of Alexander the Great. It was a seaport and it was a seaport of worldwide importance arguably the most important seaport of the ancient world. Because of where it lies geographically, it connects the Mediterranean and all the the Western world beyond it 
to the east. And they're not the only major ports. Saddam was another port. Joppa was a port. But uh, Tyre had some of the best port facilities, so it was one of the most used uh, and most popular ports for ships that would dock with goods to sell. It was the main export location for Egyptian goods. So most of the wealth of Egypt that it obtained through exporting its grain and some of the other products of, the, of that nation, they used Tyre as their export location to move that to the rest of the world. Tyrians then, or Tyrians, I guess is the term, Tyrians, were seagoing people, very accomplished, and they were colonists for the most part. They colonized many other places around the world because they were so adept at sea travel and moving around. Um, they, they are the ones who colonized Tarshish. In fact, probably the reason there are four major locations in the Western world named Tarshish, uh, Spain has one, Britain has one, there's two others, one in the, on the African coast and one elsewhere. They're all named Tarshish probably because they were all Phoenician. They just named every colony the same thing. That's what we think happened. All right, so that's the background of Tyre. Very big, very important, very prosperous city. Verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. It is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon. Your messengers crossed the sea and were on many waters. The grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river was her revenue, and she was the market of nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your jubilant city, whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? Who has planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Overflow your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more restraint. He has stretched his hand out over the sea. He has made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. He has said, You shall exult no more, O crushed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus. Even there you will find no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people which was not. Assyria appointed it for desert creatures. They erected their siege towers. They stripped its palaces. They made it a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is destroyed. I read that as a large section because I think it's better than cutting it up into pieces because it's the single story of the city being placed under judgment by God's hand and being taken from their position of prominence and power to one of virtual non-existence. And you saw some of the references, some of the geographic references, some of the uh, historical references that I gave in my introduction. You saw them mentioned in the text. All of it showing consistently what Isaiah says is consistent with what we know in history. Let me break down some of the details for you. It begins by announcing Tyre's judgment sort of in a curious way. It says, the ships of Tyre are docked in Cyprus, which is an island off of Greece, and it is there that the sailors in their ships hear about their home city's destruction. So he starts the oracle by announcing this is how the sailors of Tyre will hear about their own city. They're called the ships of Tarshish for the reason I mentioned in my introduction. These are the ships that went out and founded these cities now called Tarshish. So they're the ships of Tarshish. That's how it's being used. You'll notice that throughout, by the way. Uh, Isaiah takes every opportunity to come up with colorful ways to describe the people and the city and their history. They're daughters of Sidon because from the way the land was settled originally, settlers from the north moved southward. And so the Sidon was settled first, then Tyre was settled historically. So Tyre is the daughter of Sidon, if you will. He finds all these interesting ways of describing the same place. He says the inhabitants of the coastland are silenced. He calls them merchants, of course, of Sidon. Again, another reference to how they were related to Sidon. They're the market of the nations. They're the place that Egypt will mourn when it's no longer in business, because after all, that hurts their economy. I mean, all these references, of course. Isaiah asks in verse 8 the most important question in the passage, though. Who planned this event? If we were to have been around during the day that this transpired, this event that's being described here, you could see it merely as the normal course of human events. 
history, I guess, to put it in another term. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Here's Tyre one day, next day they get overrun by some army. Oh well. Isaiah was given the burden of this oracle so that when it occurred, anyone who would know and believe God's word anyway would have the truth. And the truth is, verse 8, God planned it from before it's happening, that this would in fact occur. And he gives the reason to defile the pride of beauty and to despise the honored of the earth. Tyre is certainly deserving of what's happening, but they are in some ways simply a representative of a larger group, that being really the earth as a whole. That they, in fact, later as we look further in this chapter, they're going to be compared to prostitutes, harlots. So there's a picture here of uh, a people who seek wealth, you know, economic wealth, at the expense of truth and justice or truth and, and morality in some sense. God doesn't give us the background on what was it about their culture and their merchantdom and the nature of the, of the way they did business that brought them under this condemnation. But whatever it is, in the way he'll describe it already and the way he describes it later in the chapter, it's clearly apparent. He's not approving of it. They're harlots. So in, in some regard, their pursuit of the wealth of being where they were as a crossroads of trade meant they became prostitutes to the world. And God is judging them for it. And by extension, he says that the honored of the earth, those that the world holds in regard, in this case, because of finances. It's an, it's a, it's an interesting thought. If you think about it, put it in contemporary terms, you wonder what God's perception is of many people in today's world. What is his perception where you see very similar kinds of activity? I'm, I, I have to wonder, or maybe we don't need to wonder. In verse 13, we're also given now the human source of the destruction. Verse 8 comes first because you need to know God did it. But then verse 13 follows so that you know how he did it. The Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? They're the Babylonians. It's Mesopotamia. Remember where Abraham came from? Ur of the Chaldeans. So Mesopotamia is the origin of Babylon. Now, there is an important historical parenthetical comment that Isaiah makes Specifically in verse 13, he says, behold, the land of the Chaldeans. So let me put it in in simpler terms in the future, Babylonians. And then he puts in this parenthetical comment. This is the people which was not Assyria appointed it for desert creatures. He's referring here to the fact that Babylon as a kingdom by the point in time when Isaiah writes this had been a kingdom already once, had seen that kingdom destroyed by Assyria. And so if you were a contemporary reader, meaning if you read what he wrote in the day he he wrote it, you would have looked at Isaiah and you would have said, whoa, 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 you're telling me that the Babylonians are going to be the ones to destroy Tyre? Last time I checked, Isaiah, Babylon was, was laid waste by Assyria. So exactly how is this going to be possible? They don't exist anymore. What does Isaiah say? Well, yes, this is the people which was not. Notice he's speaking past tense. Was not. Not is not, but was not. And he explains because Assyria appointed it for desert creatures. Assyria appointed it for desert creatures in the sense that it laid waste to the land so that it was not inhabited by anything except desert creatures. Yes, he says it is that people that I'm talking about. But by using the past tense, he makes it clear that they will have a future rise again. Well, of course, historically, that's exactly what happened. Babylon eventually rose back to power such that they turned the tables on Assyria and they were the nation that conquered Assyria after Assyria's rise. So the Babylon we know of primarily from books like Daniel is the Babylon that followed Assyria. In Isaiah's day, the only Babylon anybody remembered was the one that preceded Assyria and had been destroyed already. So he's making this point to clarify for you that, yes, you can trust me, it is going to be Babylon. It's not just because they're not here right now. In fact, it was only about 100 years after he wrote this that Babylon rose back to that point. And now, verse 15. Now, in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take your harp, walk about the city, O forgotten harlot, pluck the strings skillfully, sing many songs that you may be remembered. It will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. Then she will go back to her harlot wages and will play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. 
Her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. After the Babylonians captured Tyre and dispersed the people, just as Isaiah said would happen, now we're told a period of 70 years would ensue. And God says the city will remain desolate for 70 years, then he will visit the city again. Now, why 70 years? And maybe a a better question would be, what does that remind you of? Israel, or Judah specifically, taken captive by this very same Babylon, the same army, if you will, that destroyed Tyre, is the one that marched south and eventually took Jerusalem and and took captive Daniel and the other nobles of, of Israel and the rest of the nation eventually and brought them into captivity. We know from Jeremiah that the point of that captivity was punishment for the nation not obeying God's command to let the land lie fallow once every seven years. And they had done it for, they had ignored that requirement for so long that they had stored up 70 of those. So God says, I'm going to take back my 70 years of fallow that you owe me by putting you out of the land for 70 years. And they were in captivity for 70 years. And if you know the end of that story or that, that part of their history, Eventually, the kingdom of Babylon gives way to a new kingdom, Medo-Persians. So Persia takes command of Babylon, takes over, and therefore they inherit all, the, all of Babylon to include this ragtag group of Jews that have been in the country and hostage, if you will, slaves, I don't know, you know, captive for 70 years. God tells Cyrus, and we have that by authority at the end of Second Chronicles, God tells Cyrus let my people go, and so to speak, and let them go down to their land and let them rebuild their temple. Cyrus obeys. In fact, he funds it. He sends them with provision and sends them down with a decree that says they are allowed to rebuild their temple after 70 years. So isn't it curious that Tyre, destroyed by the same Babylonian army, has a similar period of time in which they are to lie desolate with nothing there, only to see at the end of the 70 years a rebuilding take place and that city come back to life. It's a curious connection, isn't it? Why 70? Why not 69? Why not 71? Why 70 exactly? Well, what does 7 communicate? Perfection or completion. When you see an event of historical proportion, something being done on the large canvas of the world, where many, many millions of people's lives are all wrapped together to create these circumstances, and yet they play out perfectly according to a number like 7, What is that telling you about the circumstances and the events themselves? God is doing it. You know, there's a difference in our understanding of two ideas in Scripture, foreknowledge and sovereignty or providence, whichever word you may prefer. It's one thing to know the future. It's another thing to control the future. And the more you study those two things, the more you realize that you cannot know the future unless you control the future. So when we see that 70 is the amount of time that something takes place, It's not merely God saying through Isaiah, guess what, I know this is coming. It's him saying, I'm making it happen that way. That's why it's such a perfect number, so that you would know I actually orchestrated every minute of that 70 years just the way I wanted it to go, so that there's no mistaking it. You know, I could predict, for example, who's going to win the Super Bowl, and if I'm right, you'll say, that was an amazing prediction, but you would never dream that I actually controlled the outcome of the game, would you? You would think I can just predict the future. But what if I said... During the middle of the game, all the players are going to stop playing, lay down on the ground, and spell out with their bodies the name Steve. At some point, you'd say, how did you do that, right? Now you're not asking me how I knew it. You'd say, well, that's clearly not a coincidence. How did you do that? Knowing 70 is the number and not some other random number should draw us to that same conclusion. God is doing it, which then should drive us to the more important question, why? People often say, well, the number is just a symbol. Well, it's a symbol But because it's also literal, it's a very powerful symbol. Okay, so let's answer the question then about why 70 for Tyre then. Why is God giving them this 70-year judgment, then relieving them of it, it appears, and putting them back into a position where they can go back to doing their commerce? Well, I'll tell you, it is related to the fact that there is 70 years of exile for Israel. In fact, they overlap perfectly. Almost within the same year, Tyre is destroyed and Jerusalem is taken. So in the same basic timeline as when Israel comes back into their land, Tyre is rising again as a world power or as a a port of of importance. We find out why God did this in Ezra, chapter 3. 
I read a few verses. If you want to uh, go there with me now, you can, but, but otherwise you can listen. Seven verses out of Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Ezra, by the way, is the record of Israel returning to her land and reestablishing presence in Jerusalem after their release from that 70 years of captivity. So Ezra writes this. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundations, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons, and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. So this is all a part of how they reestablished some of the sacrificial system initially as they returned to Jerusalem. What's left of the temple is just a cement slab. There's nothing else there. Now, verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundations of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. In other words, they're in a desolate city with nothing except the provisions that Cyrus gave them when they left, the, the wealth that he provided to them, they turn around and they're able to find Tyre and Sidon ready with industry to support them so that they could have the raw materials necessary to rebuild the temple. And those people are willing to take what they have to offer from Cyrus so that they can begin the rebuilding. In other words, Tyre is provided opportunity to reemerge so that they will become the industry necessary for Israel to rebuild the temple. That's how Isaiah can say in the verses I already read, verse 18, their gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. He predicts in advance that Tyre will reemerge just for the purpose of, re- of supporting the development of the temple of the re- reestablishment of Israel and Jerusalem. It's interesting, isn't it? So that's Tyre's oracle. Let's revisit all of the puzzle pieces we've studied as we move on from the oracles. Babylon, we started with the lesson out of that, the the long term eschatological picture of Babylon was the enemy, Satan, and his forces will be defeated ultimately, but Israel will rise from the ashes. The Philistines, Philistia, taught that the throne of David will actually come back as well. And that is going to happen, even if it appears for now to have faded. And when the uh, throne of David is reestablished, it will crush all other opposition. There will be no other power on earth to contend with the throne of David. And, of course, we know Christ will be on that throne. Moab, that's where we learned about the remnant. I'm sorry, about the, uh, the Gentiles, the church. The Lord will offer refuge to a small remnant of Gentiles. They will be sheltered in Israel. But we know that means in the promises of Israel, the covenants of Israel. And ultimately, they share in her kingdom. A kind of corollary to that we got out of Moab was that God will hold Israel accountable and bring them judgment even as he prepares to bring them into their kingdom. So they don't get off scot-free. They have their time of judgment. That also came out of Moab. Cush, that was Israel's enemies, will be eventually transformed into nations within the kingdom that will pay homage to Zion. They, that those enemies of the nation of Israel today, the Gentile nations around Israel today that hate her and persecute her, will become nations that support and honor her in the new kingdom. Egypt, the picture drawn out of that was that those nations that come into the kingdom, though they are healed and though they support Israel, they do not come in without their own consequences for having been enemies of Israel in the prior day. And in Egypt's case, there was that period of 40 years in which the land of Egypt will not be inhabited at the beginning of the Messianic kingdom. We move to Edom and Arabia. The two together show the picture that upon Christ's return, the Lord will prepare a place of rescue for the remnant of Israel. We know that takes place in Petra. So these nations become an integral part of how God prepares a place of protection for Israel in the last days. 
So everyone, and we haven't talked about this tire, every one of Israel's neighbors plays a part in Israel's triumph and restoration at the Lord's return. If you were to look on this map, I flashed up a little minute, a moment ago. So here's Israel right here in the dead center, kind of running north-south against the sea, of course. South is Edom, moving up the eastern side of Israel, going south to north. You have Edom, Moab. A little farther north, you have what is Babylon in the time that they are powerful enough to extend their reach that far. Then coming back down the other side, you have Phoenicia and you have Philistia. And then Egypt in the, ne- in the bottom left corner, in the most southwest corner. So every nation that surrounds Israel and historically has been their enemy is mentioned throughout all of these oracles. Each gets its day of judgment and ultimately each is being used as a picture for some piece of the events of the end time. So if you take all the pieces I just listed out, kind of write them all out, you have a fairly, a fairly complete picture of what will transpire in the last days at a high level. That there are these moments that occur as a part of Christ's return or right before his return and how God is dealing with all these people groups in, in the world and preparing a place for Israel in the end. So he's crafted that beautiful story into these details about each of the neighbors of Israel. What do we say about Tyre? Well, there doesn't seem to be a clear picture in the description of Tyre that extends all the way into the last days. But as homework, and for the sake of tonight, I'm going to leave you with this as something to do on on your own, rather than take a lot of time tonight to do this. So if you go to Ezekiel 28, here I think God gives you the piece of Tyre that we don't get in Isaiah. I won't give you the, give it away, but if you notice, it's actually an oracle itself. And the oracle has two parts. It goes verses 1 through 10 and then 11 and on. Verses 1 through 10 talk about the leader of Tyre, it says. This is the man who actually lived and ruled Tyre as king in the days before it was destroyed. I won't say any more than to say in verse 11 when the oracle seems to start again. It talks about the king of Tyre in the second half. I will just tell you that the king of Tyre and the leader of Tyre are not the same person. See if you can figure out on your own the difference between the first half of this oracle about the leader of Tyre and the second half about the king of Tyre. And you will see, I think, the same pattern we've been studying. A near-term prophecy of destruction followed by a longer view destruction that is coming in the future. That finishes the oracles of Isaiah. And now we move into a really fun, lighthearted, easy section that everyone just really enjoys. It's affectionately called Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. And it goes for four chapters from now through chapter 27. It's essentially a mini version of what's found in chapters 5 through 20 of Revelation. It seems to mirror the same teaching out of those sections, that 5 through 20 chapter range of Revelation. But it does more than just mirror the content. It actually mirrors the structure of that same series of books or chapters as well. So the way Revelation is laid out from chapter 5 through 20 is similarly the way these four chapters in Isaiah are laid out. So that connection becomes very obvious and becomes one that we pay attention to because it's obvious God's trying to convey uh, information about the same things. This is probably a good point in which we remind ourselves of Isaiah's themes which I haven't mentioned in a while. God's sovereignty, his control over all things, that's one theme. The sinfulness of mankind, the inevitability of judgment for sin, that's theme two. Theme three, the coming judgment for Israel for their transgressions against the covenant. And then four, the remnant of Israel remaining and its restoration in the coming kingdom. All of these themes are going to be on display in these four chapters. So for you who are chomping at the bit to get into Revelation at some point, this may be a a good warm up for you. Uh, Let's look at some. We're going to look at 24 and 25 tonight and see how they compare to some of what's in Revelation. Chapter 24 begins. Verse one. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste, completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. 
The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty, and therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Like I said, fun, lighthearted stuff. So, you know, it's apocalyptic literature, and this would be considered a part of that genre of, of Hebrew writing. Uh, because of its style, we, we start to gloss over the details and see it as poetic to a fault, to our fault. Poetic in the sense that we assume it's flowery ways of talking about something that's less ornate in reality. But that's not it at all. Apocalyptic literature is quite opposite of that. It is a way of taking something that is intense and horrible and making it tangible for us to understand it, to to bring it down a level, if you will, so that we can begin to grasp what's really going on. You cannot see this as just exaggerated descriptions of regular everyday calamities. You have to appreciate this as extreme in every degree because that's the nature of the times. The earth, he says, completely laid waste. He starts by saying, devastated, distorts its surface, scattering its inhabitants. It's clear enough already before you get past verse 1. It's the whole world involved here. You could not, for example, try to explain what Isaiah is describing here as something that's happened so far in the world, that it's a past event of history. You can't explain it by A.D. 70 and the Romans running over at Jerusalem. You can't explain it by the Babylonian captivity that came after he wrote this. You can't explain it by World War II. You can't explain it, if you take his words literally, by anything that's happened to this point. It's still future. You're talking about something that's on the, on the level of Noah's flood. And for more reasons than one, that's actually an apt comparison. Look at what he talks about in terms of the people. Verse 2. What, does he make, what do you make by these, these contrasts he drew through that whole verse? People like the priest, servant like the master. It's, it's a kind of classless distinction now. Society's class structure, which we all understand and, and for better or worse, we adopt and hold to very, very strictly. We know our place in society, even in an egalitarian, relatively speaking, egalitarian society like ours. There's certainly classes and it's very apparent where people fall in their classes, whether it's by education or economics or anything else. In this day, the world is so shook up None of that nonsense matters anymore. Nobody even cares or pays attention. When everyone is, I mean, I think it's interesting to me, I think about Haiti having just been a recent event, and if you can take what's happening on one little city and make that the whole world, you can understand how class suddenly doesn't matter anymore, how roles don't matter anymore. In fact, the distinctions he lays out here fall along two lines, social and economic. Social distinctions and economic distinctions are the two that are being represented by that list classless society. You have to imagine the world has to be turned upside down, literally, for us to reach that point. It says it comes under judgment. Why? Because the earth is polluted. It's full of guilt. And it has fallen under a curse. Did you notice that? What curse in verse 6 devours the earth? Which curse do you think he's referring to? There's only one curse in Scripture regarding the earth. Genesis chapter 3. As Adam and woman are discovered in the garden, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. The curse that He placed on the earth is one... And the word curse is a strong word in Scripture. It doesn't just mean darn you earth. If God ever pronounces a curse on a person, it is a guarantee they're going to hell. No reprieve possible. That's why you don't see Him condemn Adam by saying cursed is Adam. He'd be cursing all mankind if he had done that. He says, cursed is the ground, the earth, and it will wither away like a garment, Hebrews says. The whole notion that our earth is in a state of continuing self-destruction and wearing out, ultimately to be made, you know, to be totally destroyed by God's hand in the last days, is part of a plan in which a sinful fallen earth will be destroyed so that it may be replaced by a new heavens and new earth in an appropriate day. That curse on the earth is ultimately behind, along with the sin that brought it about, is ultimately behind the events of what's taking place here. The earth is cursed, and those who live in it are held guilty, as God has promised to do. I think we know God from the point of view of grace and mercy for the sake of our own salvation, and that's a 
a great thing to know and to, and to take note of, but it does not in itself diminish the, co- the comparable reality, which is God is a God of wrath against sin, and it will have its day. God's wrath will have its day against those who are under his wrath. So men have transgressed laws, violated statutes, and then interestingly, they've broken a covenant. Which covenant are we probably talking about there? What covenant can be broken such that it results in wrath? The Mosaic law or the law of Moses. And who is bound to that covenant? Paul says in Romans, all men have transgressed God's law and therefore all men are guilty of sin and do the wrath of God. And that's why the whole world comes under the judgment of God. But who can be said to specifically have broken the covenant? The Jewish nation. The Jews' breaking of that covenant is why is, is the reason why, one of the main reasons why God is putting them under the travail of tribulation. Why the Jewish nation is the focal point of tribulation. The world itself is under the curse of the earth and of sin and therefore is caught up in this moment, but it is focused on the Jews for the sake of God's covenant with them. Ultimately, he uses that to restore them because of something that's in Deuteronomy 30, Leviticus 26. Things we'll cover later in Isaiah. Okay, so the inhabitants are burned, it says, and are few. So as you can imagine, life on earth is pretty grim. Again, I think Haiti, as a microcosm of this, might be a good contemporary example. There's probably not a lot of parties and celebration and happy times right now in that city. Even if you were not directly affected, you're not in a party mood, to put it bluntly. Look at verse 7. The new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourines ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruins. And thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. So let's look at some of the details. The sense of it is clear enough, right? And it's understandable if we understand what's going on in tribulation. I'll keep, I guess, reiterating this point because I don't know how often people are likely to miss it or just not choose to accept it, I guess. But tribulation is a horrible time. I don't know how many of you had the chance to read those Left Behind books. And I think they did a you know, reasonable job of novelizing the events. I mean, as best you can. And it was certainly a fascinating way to tell the story. What I don't think they got right, among probably, probably several things, but one thing they didn't get right, in my opinion, was they don't begin, I think, to truly appreciate how things are to the extent that life has become bare existence, misery, and judgment at, all, at every turn. In other words, yes, there's these horrible moments that intersperse it, but in between... It's not as though people kind of clean up and and sweep off the front porch and get back to life for a few days until the next calamity. It's like Haiti right now. Rioting in the streets, people can't find anything to eat. You know, it's going to be uh, a huge loss of life. By some accounts in Scripture, according to how you interpret Revelation, you take billions and billions of people and reduce them to hundreds of thousands or millions. It's unimaginable. Here you see small details that allude to that. The vine decays, meaning there is no more production of new fruit for new wine. So this this principle that the continuing ebb of life where life goes through seasons and every season is new again and so on, that's just stopped. I think wine is just a picture of that. It's true for wine, but I think it's also true for a lot of other things we just take for granted that will come every year. Every year we get the hill country peaches. Every year we're going to get this. Every year we're going to get that. And now it's just stopped. All those things that mark a normal life just stop. And of course, with it, music or the need for music and the celebration that music would involve. Interesting in verse nine, they do not drink wine with song, but there is still strong drink, though it's bitter to those who would enjoy it. This will come back as an important detail in a minute. If you look at verse 12, it says desolation is left in the city. The way the word city in Hebrew is placed there, there is an inflection to suggest the definite article, the not just any city, but a particular city. Desolation is left in the city. Two views here. One is that it's Jerusalem because typically in the Old Testament, anytime a city is not named and it's spoken of in the definitive article, the, it's usually to mean Jerusalem. Could be. 
uh, wouldn't be out of the realm of, of, of reason. But because of some parallels in this chapter with places in Revelation, it could also be Babylon because of, of chapter 18 of Revelation. The fact that that city gets a whole chapter devoted to its destruction in the last days could suggest that this is a reference to that city. Either way, uh, it could be either one. The ultimate result of this in verse 13 is that the world now is reduced to a remnant. We've talked a lot about Israel being reduced to a remnant, but here the whole world is, and it's pictured by this olive tree and grape harvest thing. If you take an olive tree that's ripe and you're ready to harvest it, a quick way to get a lot of them off is to shake it, and they fall, and there's always a few left, and depending on how you know, industrious you are, you may leave them or you may go after them. Uh, similarly, if you've ever seen wine or grapes being harvested, you know, they go through with the little hooked knives and they're cutting off all of the, the clusters. They miss a few in different places. And depending, again, on how thorough they are, there's usually some left over. Well, that's how the world will be after God gets done shaking it. Only a few things left on the vine, a few things left on the branches. Few people, in other words, still alive. Now, interesting break, kind of like we saw in the last chapter. Verse 14, complete break in his message. They raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the east in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. And we pause mid-verse there. That doesn't sound like the same place we were just talking about. And not the least of which because they're glorifying God here. Very different, obviously, from what we've seen up to this point. Without naming who these people are, Isaiah says, they will shout for joy, they cry from the east, and then again from the west, and they do this concerning the Lord, the God of Israel, glorifying His name. Now, how in the world does something like this start to happen in the midst of such devastation, in a world that is utterly sinful? I mean, clearly, the only conclusion you draw from that is some men are coming to faith. Some men, in the midst of all this, come to faith in God during the tribulation. And though their physical world is falling apart, their spiritual world has become new again. So they are able to declare their joy under those circumstances. Now, here's where we see, and it's a very fascinating turn, here's where we see the structure of Isaiah mirroring the structure of Revelation, at least chapters 5 through 20. If you know Revelation, you know that there's an introductory chapter that gives us a vision of Christ in his form as king. We move to chapters 2 and 3, which are the prophecy of the church. Then we move to chapters 4 and 5, which are a picture of what happens immediately after the church leaves the earth and is raptured. Then you reach chapter 6. And chapter 6, what do we know starts in chapter 6? There's a scroll and he opens the seal on the scroll. And there's seven seals on this scroll. So as he unrolls the scroll and reaches a new seal with each turn, he's opening another judgment. Seven judgments. And those judgments are being unrolled in chapter 6. And we're hearing about as Christ is unrolling these judgments in heaven, we're then transported to the earth in John's vision, and we're watching what happens on earth in response to each of these judgments being opened up. Let's compare some of what we read in that chapter to what Isaiah has just written. Chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 4. And I'm just cutting out sort of a section of it just to give you a flavor. And another red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. When Jesus, he, broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name of death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And that's just a, a section, of course, but compare some of those details. Obvious ones, for example, lots of people dying. Similar. The availability of goods is constrained by, and probably just as a consequence of the natural upheaval that's taking place, right? And it's specifically a, a declaration from the throne that the price for basic goods would skyrocket to a point beyond anything we see today. But interestingly, wine and oil are spared, meaning 
wine and oil are still available. Now, what was really interesting about that is in verse 9, Isaiah said that new wine is stopped, but wine still exists as a strong drink. There's still the availability of wine, but just nobody can enjoy it anymore. It's, it's a bitter drink, meaning no, li- no joy in using it in light of their circumstances. So it would seem to confirm that there is still some availability of basic goods like wine or oil. They're not made to skyrocket in what, for whatever reason. But as Isaiah puts it, it's of little benefit to anybody, of little joy to anyone. Then later in verse 6 of Revelation, or I'm sorry, later in verse 12 of Revelation 6, look what comes next in that chapter. John says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of their place. What does that correspond to in Isaiah's description so far? The earth being reshaped? As he described it in verse 1, right? He says here, every mountain, every island moved. It's hard pressed. You're hard pressed to do that without reshaping the earth. And then just that little reference in passing to a fig tree, the stars falling like a fig tree shaken and casting its figs off. They're talking about something different there than what Isaiah talks about. I understand. Isaiah was talking about people dying. This is referencing the heavens actually seeing stars disappear from the sky. But the fact that they both use the same imagery of a tree shaken. Very interesting connection there. seems too coincidental, if you ask me. It seems as though both writers are trying to evoke a similar image or a similar picture of time. Finally, in, in Revelation 6, verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free. Do you see a pattern there? Great men, commanders, rich and strong, and then slave, free, classless again. They hide themselves in the caves and amid the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath is coming. Who is able to stand? That seems to correspond nicely to verse 2, which is that everyone is caught up in this and no one has any hope to escape it. Now, that's been what we've studied so far. In Revelation, when tribulation finally hits in chapter 6, Isaiah has told us essentially the same things from his point of view up until verse 13 or so of chapter 24. At that point in Isaiah, chapter 24, verse 14 or so, the whole thing changes and starts talking about a glorious rebirth, new people coming to faith in the midst of all of this uh, trial in Revelation. Does anybody know what comes next in Revelation after chapter 6? The 144,000 witnesses coming to faith in Revelation. Listen to the beginning of chapter 7 of Revelation. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. I skipped the part about the 144,000 just to to shorten it because their evangelism leads to what comes next, which is after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We interrupt your normal tribulation programming to bring you the salvation of 144,000 and a countless number who follow after them. This has been an interruption. Then back to tribulation. Isaiah does the same thing. In the way he constructs the events, he pauses after the first series of judgments to bring up the fact that there is opportunity for new faith being given in that time. And it has its effect. It brings people to a joy of salvation. And then Isaiah, back on task, chapter 24, verse 16. The next thing you hear at the Midway point of verse 16, he says, But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, the treacherous deal very treacherously, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard 
and it totters like a shack for its transgressions is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. So he transitions immediately out of this momentary pause to talk about the new evangelism and returns immediately back in. But now he picks it up from the point of view of a single person. So think of the person who says in verse 16, woe to me, woe to me. This is like a first person narrative account of someone who is existing during tribulation and, and is experiencing it as an unbeliever, obviously. And they're saying, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Isaiah responds to that in verse 17. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. So this person stands in as a representative of everyone on earth. So he says to them, yes, woe to you, but guess what? You can't avoid this. You may try to run, but God will find you. There is no escaping this judgment. There is a contrast here as he opens this section between the believers that you saw earlier And this poor soul who stands as representative of all the others, the unbelievers. And I love the way it's put in verse 16. The treacherous deal treacherously. The treacherous deal very treacherously. That's one of his favorite phrases. He used it earlier as we studied. But here it means something slightly different. If I say something like, tiger doesn't change its stripes. I may have quoted it a little. Tiger doesn't change its stripes or... God, I want to be zoologically correct, so it's, it's <laughs> leopards and spots. You're right, though. Uh, it is spots. So a leopard doesn't change its spots. If I said that to you, you'd get the right picture of what he means by this, that the rest of humanity who were not captured by those earlier verses of glory to God are still in their state of unbelief. Why? Because a leopard doesn't change its spots. Because humanity will not turn from their ways simply because... They're in a foxhole. You know the old adage, there's never an atheist in a foxhole? Nonsense. Foxholes have been filled with atheists since the beginning of time and still do today. There are a lot of people who get religion in a foxhole, but that's not the same thing as knowing the Lord. Not to say some don't come to know the Lord, of course, but the point is it's independent of your circumstances. If it was merely a case that your circumstances can produce faith each and every time, we should just take everyone we want to make a believer and point a gun to their head. If it works for someone in a foxhole, let's use it everywhere we can. Get as many souls in heaven as we can. I mean, it's a pathetic, ridiculous thing to even suggest it. My point being, to those who are not been saved by God's grace in that moment, they remain who they are. And the best example I can give you of that is out of Revelation itself in chapter 9, a brief two-verse segment of chapter 9. This is after additional judgments have been poured out on the earth. Listen to the response as the Scripture captures it. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold or silver or of brass, of stone or of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Why is that in there? Why does Revelation make such an effort to explain how Despite all this stuff that's so unimaginably terrible, we can't even begin to appreciate it. Nevertheless, to a single person, not a soul, knows the Lord as a result of them. He says, the rest of mankind who were not killed did not repent. Isaiah is affirming to that one inhabitant, you are who you are. So Isaiah returns, and I've read it all. I don't want to have to belabor it. It's pretty obvious he's... He's using great imagery to describe the destruction on earth. One of my favorites there is the drunkard. I guess what he's getting at is if you could move out into outer space and see the globe from a far distance, it would wobble on its axis, almost like a drunken sailor. It's being knocked to and fro by God's judgments to such a degree. And I'm not sure it's entirely hyperbola. It may actually be literal. And then at the end there, when he says, the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. Who is that? Satan and his demons. You know he's coming to, you know that by the time you get to verses 21, 22, 23, you know you're reaching the end of tribulation by a couple of things. So in other words, from chapter, from, from verse 16, where I started that, that passage, down to verse 23, you move all the way 
from chapter 8 of Revelation all the way to chapter 20. I mean, clearly he's just intending to summarize the events at a very high level. But look at verse 21 to 22. He says, the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. That's the spiritual realm. So that would be Satan and the demons who fell with them. They're being punished. And then second part of that verse, and the kings of the earth on earth. He makes sure you understand it's a judgment that falls upon the people and upon the, the spiritual realm, both of whom fell and are sinful. Now, we know at the end of tribulation, we see those very things taking place. We see Satan being locked up first in a pit and the demons with him for a thousand years. We know he's eventually let loose. We'll look at that here in a second. And then he is ultimately judged in the lake of fire. That's all kind of being summarized here by him saying they're going to be judged. And then, of course, verse 23, the last verse I read, it summarizes the start of the Messianic kingdom, which we know starts in chapter 20 of Revelation. As Christ has now come back to earth, he sets up his kingdom and reigns from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So he's wrapped up the whole thing, of course, in a very high level. Read through chapter 20 of Revelation and you'll see in that the the full treatment of what Isaiah gives just briefly in his verses 22 and 23. Chapter 25. Believe it or not, I want to read 25 without really any elaboration necessary and maybe a little will come in next week. It describes that first moment of the Messianic kingdom. So continuing now in that sequence of events, if chapter 24 was Revelation roughly verses chapter 6 onward, chapter 20 expanded of Revelation is all of chapter 25 of Isaiah. So chapter 25 of Isaiah is a treatment of the very beginning of the Messianic kingdom in chapter 20 of Revelation. So listen as I read the whole chapter. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. That that obviously corresponds to the oracles we read. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. Isaiah really likes wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the land of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortresses of your walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. Who could sing this song and really feel it? And I don't just mean believers, but within that group overall, who is a subgroup would really express this more than anyone? The Jewish nation as it's come into salvation, particularly when it says this is the Lord we've been waiting for, the Messiah. They've come to know him because he's returned. This literally, chapter 25, literally describes arguably the first hours of the kingdom. Christ setting a banquet, which he told his apostles, I will not drink of the cup again until I share it with you new again in my kingdom. This is the moment he was describing. So literally the beginning of the Messianic kingdom is a banquet meal. And he's inviting all those peoples, not just the Jewish nation, to embark upon the kingdom with him in this way. So this is really the the opening scene of of the kingdom. There's more we could say on it, but I think it's clear enough. And I think we certainly have said enough tonight. So we'll stop there. And and if we have a chance, maybe there's a few things toward the end of 25 we can address next week. All right, let's go to the Lord again. Heavenly Father, as we read your scriptures tonight and reflect on this moment, we all long for as the kingdom is brought into existence and us with you in that moment, it, uh, it 
Undoubtedly, Father, it stirs up in each of us a longing for that moment even now and, and just the great anticipation for it. We can echo the words that John gave of, Lord, come quickly as we consider what it will mean for your return. And we do look forward to that day. For, uh, Father, as, as the Lord tarries and waits for that future moment according to your plan, we wait with you and we pray that we may be useful to working the work you've given us in the meantime. We've come tonight to be prepared for that work and to study and know more about it. We pray it would have its effect to prepare us and then cause us to go out with greater urgency and a, and a dedication to that task. And then when we're ready for more, Lord, next week, we pray you bring us back. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.